It sounds pretty tranquil, hey? The calls of native birds above, the gentle and distant rustling of gum leaves. I'm standing in a swamp in the Blue Mountains, about 100 kilometres west of Sydney. I'm close enough to the backs of houses that I can hear dogs barking and sirens going down the highway, but I'm definitely in the bush. All around the edge of the swamp, leaf litter covers the ground except where skinny tree ferns jut out. These swamps, you see, play some crucial roles in maintaining the health of our ecosystems. They're incredibly effective managers of water and carbon. The thing is, there's a lot we're throwing at swamps that they just can't handle. Hear the water trickling here? That's not good. This swamp is sick. I'm Josh Green, and in this episode of Think Sustainability, we're talking about swamps, what's going on in them, the efforts to protect them, and why we need to care about these undervalued ecosystems. The first thing we need to know about swamps is what they actually are and what they do. I think most people don't have a concept of what they do, or if they have a concept of, of what a swamp is, it's sort of the, the quicksand, you know, the kind of the cartoon. But when you show people, you point out what a swamp is. And, and if you stand back and you look at a swamp, what we call the swamp, you can see it in the landscape. This is Grant Hose. He's a professor of biology at Macquarie University. For a number of years, he's been looking into just this, the structure and the function of upland swamps around Sydney. It's the complexity of these, these systems and, and, and their role in the landscape that just captivates me. Upland swamps are just a fantastic and really quite unique element of, of the landscape, of the natural landscape around the Sydney Basin and a little bit beyond. And they occur in little shallow valleys at the edge of the escarpment. So just as the water starts to run off the, the plateau around the Blue Mountains, for example, these little swamps will form. And they'll form because at the bottom end of the shallow valley, there's a little constriction. Usually that's from bedrock or accumulation of debris. And behind that, water and sediment will start to, to fill back up behind it. Now, as that sediment starts to fill up behind it and the water, it becomes saturated. So that's when the peat starts to form, the organic matter from the plants uh, and the trees starts to, to build up. These swamps are, are really fascinating from an ecological perspective. They're also really important for, from, a, from a water resources perspective. So a lot of these swamps occur in, the, in, our, in our drinking water supply catchment and they have a really important function of filtering the water, but also they store a lot of water. And when they store this water, they release it slowly. So during a storm, rain, they'll fill up and then they will release that water slowly into the catchment. So it means there's a much steadier supply of water going into our, our drinking water supply catchments um, than, than if they weren't there. So they have this sort of sponge capacity. And they are like little islands. They're little islands amongst the, the rest of the forest or the, the natural environment. And because of that, because they're little islands, they they can have their own unique flora and fauna. And because they've been separated from other swamps for a very long period of time, they've, in many cases they've evolved, evolved rather genetically distinct populations of various critters. So for example, there's the, the Blue Mountains water skink is one. And that occurs because that little water skink 
can't move over to the next swamp. There's this barrier of the, of the woodland and the forest in between them. Not only are these swamps critical water regulators, they're also home to a bunch of different native species that live specifically in these ecological communities. The Blue Mountains water skink, the giant dragonfly, the giant burrowing frog. These creatures are all found in swamps, as well as heaps of different plants. And that's not even all these swamps do. Um, swamps are, of course, geographically small areas compared to, say, forests and others on the planet, systems that sequest carbon. They take carbon out of the atmosphere and they turn it into essentially peat. Dr John Merson is the executive director of the Blue Mountains World Heritage Institute. He's also an associate professor at UNSW. Um, they have run to often a depth of three to four metres down. And um, so they retain a huge body of carbon. When they channelise, that carbon is lost. And the functionality of those swamps in sequestering carbon. Peat is the partially decayed vegetation that gathers in swamps. It's what makes them important stores of carbon. But peat takes a really long time to accumulate. Peat's interesting because it's a very slow process. It doesn't degrade quickly. The peat swamps are a very slow process. And you look at sedges and these grasses, they, they slowly deposit and um, drop their leaves and structure into it, and it just builds up over time. Very slow process. And we talk about 15,000 years, and you've only got a swamp of three metres. That's a, a very slow process. When we're looking at um, swamps more generally, not just here in the Blue Mountains, but across the planet, they represent a very small proportion of the landmass, yet they're the most intense concentration of carbon we have. With all the things swamps do in the Blue Mountains and across the world, you'd think we'd be doing everything we can to make sure they're as healthy as possible. But a report from John's organisation says the swamps face a number of threats, and they're mostly generated by us. Grant explains. Actually, it's quite interesting because depending on where you are or where these swamps are, rather, depends on the, the different pressures. So around the Blue Mountains, it's all about urban pressures. So pressures of, of urban sprawl are associated with that is stormwater. So these, are, these swamps are usually downstream of the urban developments or they're, they're receiving urban stormwater and all the, the stresses that go along with that, the weed propagules, the nutrients... Going a little further west to Nunes, nearer to Lithgow, the main threat changes. There, the predominant pressures are, are mining. And there are a number of, of swamps that have been undermined. And um, when you undermine swamps or you, you get um, subsidence due to mining, it changes the way the water moves around the surface. So in some cases, water that was running into the swamps and keeping them wet is no longer going there. If you think of, if you think of a swamp as a bath, the mining and the subsidence can cause a crack in the bath. And of course, when you've got a crack in the bath, all the water's going to run out. And so there have been some cases, unfortunately, where, where that has happened. What about climate change? Oh, of course. Yeah, that, that's everywhere. Climate change is huge, a huge threat to these systems because climate change affects the way or the amount, rather, of, of water that's coming and going from these systems, and the way that that water is delivered. What we see happening around Sydney is shrinking and expanding of, of swamps over time. So where things start to dry out, the woody trees from the forest start to encroach in on the swamp, and then when it gets wetter, they sort of move back. So certainly the likelihood is, is, is that 
climate change and the change in rainfall patterns, the distribution of water is going to affect swamps very considerably. And the reasons for that is the swamps have adapted to a climatic range, that is, levels of heat, sequences of fire, drought, and then, of course, flooding. So if you ratchet that up, and it gets very hot, as we saw in um, the 2019 period, swamps start to dry out, then you get a major fire going through that, and then you get, uh, followed by that, a massive storm system. That has weakened the swamp, and it risks, not always, it's an inevitable thing, they start to channelise, because the volume of water coming into them is so great, they can't just, just spread out, it starts to cut through the surface of the sedges and the other plants that actually hold the swamp together, and it starts cutting down into that peat. And as it cuts down, it dries out. The water, water basically flows into that trench and starts to disappear, and so you see a stream. It's the water that makes these swamps swamps, but they're also really sensitive. Too much water, and they won't be able to handle it. The water in the swamps are really quite acidic. And what happens when you get, say, runoff from concrete, you start to change, it becomes more alkaline, and the pH level goes up. In other words, changes from being acidic to being more alkaline. So that sort of process actually um, changes the vulnerability of those swamps to infestation of weeds. You start to get an imbalance in the vegetation in the swamp, which means that certain very aggressive weeds get in, and therefore they compete with the native um, species in the swamp. So when the weather changes, you get these extreme weathers, it hasn't got the same hold at the surface to hold the swamp together. And so you get a vulnerability to that channelization process. So channelization is the primary, primary threat to swamps. Another word for this channelization of swamps is incision, where the swamps become incised. What we've noticed from our research is that swamps can be either incised or not. And, and what I mean by incised is if you think of, a, of there being effectively a creek, a stream running through the swamp, what happens within incision is that that creek starts to to be eroded and so you have an eroded stream channel effectively forming through the swamp what that means is that previously where the whole sediment profile all the soil and the sediment was saturated when you incise it it makes the water table drop so the water so that means the top layers of soil are no longer saturated and that becomes a problem for a couple of reasons one reason is because the plants really like having wet feet and if they don't have wet feet, they die and then they're changed by plants that do. When this process occurs and the swamp gets sicker and sicker, the carbon that was being stored is emitted. In turn, the swamps are also no longer able to store carbon. So it's really a lose-lose when you consider how much carbon is trapped in these swamps. And you keep going to your left, you'll verge around and you'll come to a point where you get a little bridge. To better understand this, I went to a swamp just off the end of a nowhere road in Bulabara, the Blue Mountains' second most nowhere suburb. It sits on the land of the Darug and Gundungurra peoples. It's one of the swamps the Blue Mountains World Heritage Institute has been studying. John says the way this swamp has been harmed is largely due to urban development. See, years ago, the highway that runs through the Blue Mountains was widened. When it rains and the water comes off the concrete used in this development, it becomes more alkaline, so the pH level goes up. 
When this water makes its way into the swamp, it messes with the natural acidity, and over time, this weakens the swamp's natural integrity. That's why you can hear this little stream. The swamp has been cut through, so it no longer holds water so well. All around, the swamp is collapsed, and when you look up, you can see where the top of it used to be, above your head. The sedges and the shrubs that normally make this place so bright green are collected in heaps like sad grey skeletons. So you could find a channel go in a matter of even a couple of years, 18 months or so. You can go from being a perfectly level surface down to a channel that goes down three metres to the ground base. As that happens, the water drains out. It doesn't hold water the same way. It drains it out and the swamp ceases to be a swamp. And that means, if you just think the aggregate of thousands of these um, systems, let us say, for the sake of argument, that 80% of them channelize. The volume of water coming down to Sydney's basin would make the runoff from the Warragamba Dam look like a picnic. So you've got very physical changes that would take place if we don't conserve these critical systems. So taking the standard projections in 2012, it was published in 2012, it was estimated a third of the swamps could be could collapse. That's a, uh, that's a potential, unless we radically deal with something. And this kind of thing happens despite the swamps being listed as endangered at both state and federal levels. When the bushfires of summer 2019-2020 came through, more than half of these swamps experienced burning. 72% of that was severe burns. It's said the most severely affected swamps resembled a moonscape. But the full impact of the fires will take years to measure. And what that means is that with a high intensity burn is that everything is, is devastated. So that means the surface vegetation is gone. And in many cases, those really organic peat layers were also gone. Everything that we use to kind of define that swamp has been has been devastated. And that's going to take a number of years, many years, many years to come back to be able to regenerate that organic matter, if it's at all possible. So all the main threats to swamps seem to come back to us. Urban development, the intense manifestations of anthropogenic global warming. But this isn't a new thing. Heather Goodall is a historian and a professor emerita at UTS. She's been working on the environmental history of the Georges River, which runs through Sydney. I think there's been an expectation and an assumption that it was best for everybody's health and it was best for economic activities if the swamps could be, and the word was reclaimed, turned into real land made into real productive spaces. And so the idea of reclamation was a very common one and it had been in existence in England before England invaded Australia and before there were Australian situations in which swamps were seen as being not real land. Heather has written a book about the historical conflicts around the Georges River, many of which involve management of swamps and mangroves. The wetlands which remain on the Georges River, which, as I said, is really it's in the middle of a city, um, the wetlands that remain there are there because local people fought for them. 
they defended them. Um, there had always been, as I said, this, this belief by authorities that you could somehow save these places and reclaim them to make them real agricultural land. But this escalated dramatically after the Second World War when the economy changed and the packaging industry really emerged and there were massive amounts of household garbage which local government had the responsibility of getting rid of. Population pressures escalated and there were tonnes of garbage to deal with. And it seemed an easy way to um, solve this, both problems, the garbage problem and the space problem, by uh, digging up, bulldozing the swamps and filling them up with garbage and turning them into flat land for housing or for farms. Now, the bits of swamps that were saved were saved because local people went out and fought for them. And what they demanded from the very beginning in the 19, early 1960s and 70s, they demanded that garbage be recycled and there was no recycling in those days. They demanded uh, regeneration, bush regeneration strategies involving pulling out invasive species and changing the, the incoming and invading and destructive uh, species by removing them. They argued for the retention of public space along riverbanks so that the wetlands would be protected just like other types of endemic species. So it's, it's people's action that saves wetlands. At the time all of this was unfolding, it really wasn't fashionable to be caring for swamps. The early conservation movement in Australia and in the United States was very much focused on what was thought to be pristine wilderness, primitive wilderness it was called in those days. And that was often about claiming identity. It was often about the, the, the land of colonised land as belonging to the invaders, when in fact this land had been productive land of First Nations communities for centuries and centuries. So it, it, it was an illusion that there was a pristine wilderness, but this was certainly where attention was focused in the early days of the conservation movement. The lower part of the river, on which Heather focuses, cuts through Durrawal and Durrag lands. Heather says environmental movements often overlook the history of the Georges River swamps, in part because they weren't regarded as pristine wilderness. And it wasn't regarded as a dramatic theatrical environmental conflict. The local residents were working class people, they were teachers, they were lower middle class. We talked a lot with local council health officers and they explained that it actually wasn't so much about digging up a bunch of mangroves or a bunch of swamp. It was about trying to work out what to do with this garbage. They had really massive problems with garbage disposal. And they actually didn't know what to do. And they were concerned about health, certainly. But they were concerned about these massive amounts of garbage. This history is an important part of the story of swamps. It was the action of the community at the Georges River that saved what is left of the wetlands. And today, people are still mobilising around swamps. And really fortunately, there are some really active groups who are going into swamps and they're, they're doing that bush care, bush regeneration and they're really well supported by uh, the Blue Mountains Council, for example. So it's no surprise that they're, they're protected under state and federal legislation, which is, again, a good thing, but there's still plenty of work to be done. Some of that work is what the Blue Mountains World Heritage Institute is looking at. 
So we started a monitoring system, we could say, a complex, comprehensive monitoring system of all the elements that make up a swamp. And it's a bit like thinking, think of the swamp like a human body, and you go to the doctor, and what he does, he takes your blood pressure, takes your temperature, you measure how a body is functioning, you measure it against what would be the norms normally for that. John says his group has come up with a kind of medical model of a healthy swamp, against which they can compare other swamps. So we basically do this very... Um, detailed monitoring exercise every three months and we have um, three uh, particular swamps the good the bad and the ugly then you go to the, the one i mentioned the boulevard swamp and it's a total mess it's fat, weed infestated it's channelized it's collapsing and we're now actually in fact working with the council to actually restore that swamp. if a sick swamp is caught early on work can be done to aid it back to health. Once it starts to channelize, that's the last moment, if you like. That's when it's really sick. So you can't just use sudden channelization to get an indicator something's wrong. You really want to get it earlier than that. Then we have photo shoots, which give you the vegetation. But as I said, vegetation usually shows up if it's degrading at a very late stage in the changes of the swamp. This early intervention approach can save swamps, and it means we can get a better understanding of them too. What's important to John is that this work actually has an impact. For example, the work the group has done in showing the effects of the runoff from the concrete used in the road construction, that can be used to inform decision-making. So we're sort of involved in helping the agencies, the land management agencies, to better manage the resources. There's still hope for these swamps. And not just these swamps, but swamps all over the world. These things are everywhere. And the challenges, well, they're pretty universal too. It's vitally important to recognise that the campaigns to save wetlands have been going on for a long time. They've been different at different times, but they've been going on for a long time and it's important to keep them going. Even small actions make a big difference. They draw more people in and informing and educating people is crucially important. And they make a difference in environments which are already, you know, imperfect, which are already hybrid, which are already contaminated. But the goals are to try and recognise the value of places which our cultures might denigrate. We might have a long-held fear and anxiety about swamps, but we need to understand how important they are in conserving environments. I mean, if we need to get out there before climate change becomes so ubiquitous and extreme that these systems start collapsing at a rate that no one will be able to adjust. They're very robust things in, in the normal circumstances, but normal circumstances aren't going to be around for all that long unless we can address the climate change threat and the extreme weather that comes with us. But they're just brilliant. You know, so often you're out in the, the, the bit I love is the silence, the solitude. All you hear is the wind and, and the birds, you know, the, the diversity, the things you see, the, the plants, the animals, the, the invertebrates, the mammals, you know, they, they are fantastic places. And part of the joy of working in swamps is just being out there and appreciating the natural environment you're in, because we are so blessed in this country to have these places. So let's look after it. Let's, let's understand it and look after it and value it and give it the respect that it deserves because it won't be here forever if we don't look after it.
Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard all around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Josh Green. Thanks for your company.